I V M. Hello, we're Team Splainer. Welcome to an all-new episode of Best Decode, a weekly podcast where we take Splainer's mission to declutter the news one step further. Check out our newsletter for more stories and follow us at Splainer In to keep up with all the fun things we plan for our Splainer fam. So sit back, relax, and don't let the news give you the blues. I'm Prafula, your host for the day, and we have a full house with Vagda, Sara, and Splainer trainee Nivedita. As usual, we have three segments for you. For our big story, we're looking at how the Kashmir Files depicts what happened to the Kashmiri Pandits in 1990. In our Food for Thought segment, we're talking about Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill and what it means for representation. And in our final segment, we are roasting and toasting our fave and least fave items. Now on to our big story. Unless you've been living under a rock, I'm assuming you've heard of Vivek Agnihotri's latest film, The Kashmir Files. And it makes for perfect podcast fodder. Both the film and its director are magnets for controversy. And it's received two thumbs up. Our PM and everybody and their mother won't stop talking about it. Uh, now, the film has also received immense support because it has received tax exemptions from several states like UP, Tripura, Goa, Haryana, Uttarakhand. In Karnataka, the Assembly Speaker arranged for a special showing for ministers in the state. And the Madhya Pradesh government has made making the film tax-free, has urged theatre owners not to hike its ticket prices. Uh, the state home ministry has also provided a special leave for cops to watch the film with their families. So what's the big deal around it? And how accurate is this film? From what I've read online, the film revolves around uh, Kashmiri Pandit, Krishna, who lives with his grandfather in Delhi and is a student at this film's version of JNU. When Krishna's grandfather dies, he travels to Kashmir to spread his ashes and meets a couple of his grandfather's friends, uh, who then tell Krishna about how his family was killed by militants in Kashmir. Until this point, Krishna believes that his family has died in an accident and has apparently been so brainwashed by a leftist professor in college that he struggles to believe that this actually happened. So, oh my god. I know. I just want to see Agnihotri's version of JNU. That's going to be the singular reason why I want to watch this movie. Dude, and they haven't even made an attempt to change it because apparently it's called ANU. I went to the Wikipedia and they had something linked. So I thought they'd have like the name of this fictional university. It links directly to the JNU page. They've not made a single attempt to hide anything. But uh, we've heard so much about the depiction of violence against pundits. And this has clearly left an impression on moviegoers. Some say, oh, their third eye has been opened and now they know the truth. And others, you know, have called it propaganda. Others still were so moved that they began sloganeering in movie theatres. Uh, so while it does depict the plight of the pundits in Kashmir, I think it also has turned people towards hate speech. The week of its release, there were videos where people outside theatres urged other Hindus to stay away from Muslims to keep themselves out of harm's way. But for a film that has evoked such strong reactions, really, how accurate is it? The film claims that some 4,000 pundits were killed during uh, this time period due to militancy, oh and that five 
lack more were displaced from what i understand the film would also have us believe that only this one community was affected by terrorism while the rest sat back and watched so what really happened in january 1990 and what were the events that led to so much discord in the state to begin with okay so the whole exodus is a lot 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 to unpack and just mm. like we've clearly established a 2 hour 50 minute movie can't do justice to the tragedy our 20 minute segment on the pod can't possibly be not be enough either so we fully acknowledge this and actually suggest you read our two part explainers on the great kashmiri pandit exodus to get a big picture view on what really happened now that that's out of the way i'm going to try and look at the state's dysfunctional political history to make sense of how we even reached the exodus so in 1947 the princely state of jammu and kashmir became a part of the indian nation By 1950, the constitution came into force alongside Article 370, which accorded special status to the state. Now, the first prime minister of the state, as the post was called back then, was Sheikh Abdullah. However, within just a few years, he was put behind bars on accusations of plotting secession. Then came Indira Gandhi's government at the centre, where she struck a deal with Abdullah. He gave up his call for Azadi, and boom, became the CM of a Congress government, no less. Then there were a series of partasses between the center and the state, with governments coming in and out of power. But the valley really took a sharp turn towards militancy by the year 1987, when Rajiv Gandhi, along with the Abdullah signed Farooq, infamously rigged the election. This blatant repression of democratic principles was a turning point that opened the floodgates of militancy in the valley. Now, leaders who had democratically stood for elections in 87. would soon take arms and choose to be part of organizations like Hizbul Mujahideen by 1989 thanks to the Beaufort scandal the congress lost out and in came VP Singh's government in the center he appointed Mufti Mohammad Saeed as his home minister and within 6 days of the appointment Saeed's daughter was kidnapped by the JKLF this brought the central government down to the talking table and they had to release the jkrf's top commanders from prison which in turn gave rise to what were the seeds of a full blown secessionist movement in the state from then on militants in the state became more blatant and they began the targeted killing of pandits who were now seen as the other the state suffered from blatant political interference from the union government all of it which for the union government was designed just to bring jammu and kashmir tightly under its control the effect however ended up only fueling kashmiri rage against the outsiders and which eventually turned the pandits into collateral damage who were trapped between political expediency and the rising frenzy for azadi so the violent precursor to the fateful night of january 1990 which was the exodus began so to say was a spate of killings in the state prominent kashmiri pandits men and women were gunned down all in the midst of a bloody campdown that was supervised by the then governor now beyond this the facts get hazy because like the fuller explained the number of kashmiri pandits killed by terrorists or even those who fled the state are far from tallyable so nevedita can you just shed light on the sheer range of how wildly different the numbers are and sara so there's no proper confirmation on the exact numbers one of the things we need to understand about the exodus is that nobody has confirmation on the exact numbers absolutely no no one not the general public not the government and certainly not this movie while there are particular names and people who have been confirmed dead the exact number of kashmiri pandits killed or displaced varies this may be due to the fact that kashmiri pandits are just a small subsection of hindu brahmans then we have the displaced hindus 
displaced people of other castes or and faiths and finally kashmiri migrants kashmiri migrants include all the kashmiri hindus and people of other faith now on to debunking these myths according to this movie 5 lakh kashmiri pandits were forced to migrate this is simply not possible really not possible according to the 1981 census the total hindu population in kashmir was simply 125042 people this is the total oh, hindu no. population the total number of people forced to migrate varies from source to source as like there's no exact thing right now for us the government website said it was 60000 families a researcher named alexander evans estimated the number between 160000 and 170000 interestingly enough former chief of army staff general nc vich who also hails from jammu put the number in his book at 4 lakh so usually when asked about the number of migrant kashmiri pandits the central government answers with the total number of kashmiri migrants not simply pandits that category includes people from all the faiths the latest count offered by bjp government is in 2021 is 44167 kashmiri migrant families of which only around 39782 were hindu so the rest were people of other faiths the numbers are constantly updated every year and change at one point the highest the number was estimated at 60000 families but again pandits are only a subcategory of the kashmiri hindus but what is undeniable is that by the end of 1990 the pandit community and kashmir had virtually disappeared currently there are only 800 families left in the valley most of the refugees settled in jammu or delhi now the exact number of kashmiri pandits killed by extremists is uncertain in 2011 the home ministry replied to a query in the lok sabha that the total number was 219 since 1989 so there's a long period and only 219 confirmed death in the same year the kashmir pandit sangharsh samiti said the number based on the surveys was 399 but the more likely number is 650 in the last 20 years but here is the main number 302 people were killed in 1990 alone so the number really varies even today and there is no confirmation the sangharsh samiti also made it clear that it does not agree with the propaganda that 3000 to 4000 pandits were killed in kashmir and obviously agnihotri's movie offers this number panan kashmir it's an organization that wants a separate homeland for kashmiri pandits put the number at a more reasonable at 1341 till very high but much lower than the propaganda number so the movie severely overcounts and the government severely undercounts is the bottom line i think so, so The government's point was that no one is talking about the pandits, and it needs to be spoken about. So, on that note, we come to the end of our first segment. We will be right back after a short break. You are listening to Press Decode on the IVM Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome back to Press Decode on the IVM Podcast Network. We're Team Splainer, and make sure to follow us at Splainer Inn on Instagram and Twitter to keep up with the Splainer fam. In today's food for thought segment, we are talking about Florida's "Don't Say Gay" bill and how it affects queer representation in media. So, the "Don't Say Gay" or Parental Rights in Education bill, as it is formally known, restricts teaching kids about gender identity and sexual orientation. So, any lessons of this kind, quote unquote, may not 
occur in kindergarten through grade 3 or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards what this means is in conservative red states it will never be age appropriate for kids to learn about um, sexual identity and this could definitely restrict conversations around queerness completely if the school district or county so feels the need um the bill also lets parents sue the school if or any particular teachers if they bring up these topics the bill of course has received overwhelming support from republicans in the house of representatives and governor ron desantis and why are we talking about this in the last We Disney removed the kiss between a same-sex couple in the new animated film Lightyear. The uh, scene was reinstated when employees pushed back, and on Tuesday, several Disney employees staged a walkout in protest of how Disney treats its queer characters. So, how is it all related? Given that Walt Disney World, the happiest place in the world, is located in Florida, the company has had an annual seventy-five point two billion economic impact, along with an additional five point eight billion that goes into the state tax revenue. DeSantis and Disney CEO Bob Chapek also met to discuss the bill. After which, the governor mocked Disney for being woke. Yes, the very same Disney that skirts around controversial topics by cutting scenes between queer characters or tries to make the characters not so gay. For example, innocent physical affection between characters in Luca and Turning Red were toned down, so to speak, but has still been the focus of fierce debate about inappropriateness when the films were released. And the company does its best uh, not to get uh, its films banned in, you know, conservative places in China where its viewership is huge. Uh, like the 2020 Pixar film Onward was banned in Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia because a female character vaguely alludes to a girlfriend. In Russia, the term was changed to partner. The authors for the Don't Say Gay bill may say that the bill is protecting young children from inappropriate influences, but all it really does is make acceptance more difficult and conversations, especially for young queer kids, more dangerous. Representation is tricky, yes. but we have a very real problem if there's outrage over an innocent show of affection i mean think about it how many times as kids did we encounter uncomfortable if not over the top explicit scenes between straight characters and how barely anyone thought it was inappropriate enough to pass legislation around right yeah you know i'm just thinking about how these children in florida are how they're supposed to deal with families with lgbtq folks I mean US legalized same sex marriage in 2015 in all the states. Mm. So soon you'll have a kid sitting in class who is asked to talk about his family or make a drawing of them, you know, that's common right because mm-hmm. considering little children their families are their whole world and when you go to school you talk about these things. So it's pretty common but the kid likely has two moms. So how's the teacher going to deal with this when other kids ask him the teacher what's going on with this child you know the american psychological association has come out against the don't say gay bill saying that banning discussion on the topics basically translates to identifying as lgbtq is inherently wrong stigmatizing and marginalizing children who may realize their difference at a young age and this may also lead to social isolation and stigma resulting in depression anxiety self harm and even suicide so it's important to talk about it and that makes me think about where we are in india in terms of lgbtq information in schools now homosexuality was still a crime till all of us were in school yeah am i yeah. getting that right about age 
<laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> yeah, so but beyond sexual orientation, school was pretty unwelcoming to anybody who did not toe the gender identity lines. Mm. The school administration didn't necessarily or always engage in unwelcoming behavior, but it facilitated and ignored imposition of cishet norms in school social setups. And not even that it did not engage at some points it even penalized anything that was not cishet maybe hmm. not outrightly penalized but there was hmm. you know even simple things like oh boys don't cry we were yeah. taught yeah. that since kindergarten yeah yeah and like have you ever had teachers make fun of like kids who may not be completely gender conforming like a very effeminate uh, boy or a sort of hmm. tomboyish girl Yes. Like, yeah. Yes. A lot in my yes. school, hmm. and it happened not only with teachers not being good to the kids, but mainly students bullying the effeminate boy, the so-called yeah. effeminate boy. A lot. I saw a lot of that. That's what I'm saying. I saw a lot of that happening in like peers. Hmm. Yeah, I especially. don't exactly remember if my teachers. I mean, see, they let it happen. I don't That's remember true. instances of them doing it. I think the worst trope that also always pissed me off was what if one of the sporty girls on farewell she wore a sari like oh my god you can do that as well and I'm just like it's a whole right there are such binaries ugly binaries that were just inbuilt among students teachers and the entire culture mm. that you had to be a certain way to pull off a sari apparently you're just yeah. boxed in there's no room for exploration or anything there's just boxes. No coloring outside the lines. Have you guys heard that song, uh, "Little Boxes"? No. Okay, so I'm gonna put the link in the description. It's really nice. I don't remember the name of the artist. Uh, it's an old song, so I'll just put the link in the description. It's a really, really poignant song. Okay, uh, but see, point is that schools did not help us hmm. about telling us anything about identities beyond these gender binaries. So if it is not going to come from school, where will it come from? Media. And if a queer student does not find support in her peers, she is likely to find solace in media that speaks to her character. So let's talk about our sweet little Bollywood. When Shubh Mangal Sa- Zada Savdhan released, everyone touted it as the arrival of homosexual narratives in Indian cinema. But Professor Madhavi Menon, who is a historian of desire in India, she disagreed. She basically said that our old Bollywood movies are full of queer content. We just need to look at it. That it does not need to be explicitly in your face queer to be queer. Hmm. And while I agree with that, I'm all for subtle narratives. I think it's important to put these things out explicitly, also, just to normalize it. If I can watch a straight couple kiss in movies, I start to think it's normal. If I get to see an older woman masturbate on screen, think lipstick under my burqa. I start to think that's normal. Same thing applies to violence, by the way. Sadly, so then why hush up something that will help normalize something that is normal? Hmm. I should be able to see same-sex kisses and queer identities on screen. So, can we see how far we've gotten on that front? I think here I just want to come in first and say it's also right when you, when you have to look so hard to see the queer narrative. It's also about oh, you need to be subtler even in life. Yes, which yes, yes. Yes. You know, uh, I was watching that Andy Warhol documentary last weekend and uh, there was this one instance where somebody talking about Andy was saying that how he was accepted into the art world even though he was he thought he was an outsider. A lot of people did think that he was an outsider. He wasn't in your face gay and that's how he was let in, you know. He's just a nice artist gay. 
And honestly speaking, even the queer community wasn't entirely thrilled considering the couple's sexuality was explored only as a byproduct of a failed straight relationship, of course. But it was still something. Then there were a few other smaller films here and there, be it Girlfriend from 2004 that went to the extent of showing two near-naked women roll around in bed without actually kissing, of course. Then there was My Brother Nikhil in 2005 that dealt with the intersection of AIDS and being gay. There were also some blink-and-you-miss representations, my favorite of which is Jare Tu Ya Jare Na. For those of you who haven't noticed it, yes, I'm not going to spoil it, but I do suggest you re-watch the video for Papu Khan Dance Sala and Thank Me Later. So... But other than that, the movies of that decade didn't do much to really understand the queer lived experiences, except as much as like a comic relief trope. Think Dostana, Kal Hona Ho, Partner, even Student of the Year, which was from 2012 for that matter. The homosuggestive scenes were all but to elicit a quick chuckle here and there. Uh, two standout films of the early first decade of the century, however, were Life in a Metro and Honeymoon Travels Private Limited that featured gay men in straight relationships and the complexities of it and how they went about their lives. Now, they were far, far from perfect and are definitely not the primary aspects of the film's plot, but it was still a step away from like the thoughtless comedy we just revisited. And then came the 2010s, all the way until now, when Madhuladlas and Ladlis totally biglofied and yet were like increasingly unapologetic about it. Thankfully, I really, really agree with Sara and I'm really happy that the LGBTQ plus cinema in India is moving in such a positive direction. For me, the first time I saw two men kissing each other on screen was Bombay Talkies. I was 12 or 13 at that time, I guess. And it startled me a little, obviously, to watch something non-heterosexual. That was the first time I saw something like this. But I'm really glad I saw it as it opened my eyes to something beyond the heteronormative lens. Next, Kapoor and Sons was easily first largely commercial movies to portray a gay character without feminizing him. While the plot did not revolve around his sexuality, its storyline was given ample importance. Similarly, Sonam Kapoor's Ek Ladki Ko Dekha To Aisa Laga with Anil Kapoor, his charm and his Punjabiness brought the conversation to the masses in a way that even Kapoor and Sons hadn't even been able to do. On the other hand, while these were largely characters portrayed by adults, Margarita was the straw starring Kalki Kekla had her as a student in both in Delhi University and then New York University portraying a bisexual character. 
it handled the topic of disability and sexuality with such brilliance it left me completely in awe aligarh which portrayed the life story of professor siras after a gross invasion of his privacy left me in tears from reading here others and even the cinema we come to understand that a lot of people battle internalized homophobia some get the happy ending and some don't but neeraj khaiwan through his short film geeli puchi in rajeev dastan showed that many people may be able to get through something they've been told is wrong for years like falling for someone of the opposite gender some things like caste can still come in their way in this movie a married upper caste hindu woman her lover's sexuality but not her caste this type of intersectionality and the complexity that just started in indian queer cinema and i for one really really cannot wait to see where it goes talking of recent movies badhai do the recently released movie which portrays a lavender marriage that is with two homosexual individuals pretend to have a heterosexual marriage has opened the door to a lot of conversations vivek tejuja a person i greatly respect wrote on twitter that after watching the movie his mother wished that she had supported him more it was only the si- sorry i think i want to also come in here and like not to interrupt but Bhaido was such a refreshingly good watch that I just have to put it out there anyone who hasn't seen it please 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 go watch it like I did not expect it and it was a surprisingly refreshing watch it was really refreshing and really heartwarming like we did not expect like a perfect bow tied hollywood ha- bollywood happy ending but it was realistic and still managed to melt hearts please that's what i felt In Chandigarh Kade Aashiqui which happens to be one of the few movies in Bollywood that show trans people without portraying them as eunuchs quite unlike the really really horrible Lakshmi bomb it at least treated the subject and community with the respect they deserve that really really horrible is so on point like man basic also, respect please please also her bar is so low it's it's so sad it's practically on the floor please <laughs> don't take a tunnel underground <laughs> also there's two special mentions for the ott platforms one the first for kabir mehra in made in heaven well technically not bollywood it ruthlessly quashed the false opinion that all gay men are feminine with a layered storyline and developed character I simply fell in love with the show. Absolutely cannot wait for the next season. And then second, Human, a series with on vaccine trials starring Shefali Shah and Kirti Gulari in the main roles. While I stand Shefali Shah, she's my queen and her character is so complex and I genuinely cannot describe what her character is. Please watch the show if you're able to and trigger warnings and everything. In Kirti Gulari plays a closeted lesbian woman already married to a heterosexual man who cheats on him and lies to him and is like complex characters again it's something that cannot be described but none of this was fetishized and it was not male gaze that we saw through it so like ye progress but ye please we need a feel good queer story please a feel good someone with their happy ending can you guys notice one thing nearly the entirety of like indian queer cinema or any sort of Indian queer representation in the visual form at least maybe not literature is still about the coming out saga like mm. i think that's only the stage one of life right beyond that mm. we still haven't accepted like hasn't haven't explored how normal a queer life is which yeah. is still 
where we need to get to yeah and this is you know if you i don't know if you guys have seen shit's creek have you all of you should seen shit's yes. creek yes so parts of it yeah. did you watch the post production video yes i, I did I, yes. i weep even now <laughs> yeah i love that post production video and the point they make about how how this is like a one normal show about a queer person's life where it is like a normal thing mm. a, like a society that treats it normally what would it be like otherwise all our queer narratives in all kind of shows and movies is generally just like sad and tragic yeah and you know angst and pain and oh my god it's like yes i'm not denying that is a very very big That's part there. it's very much there but there is also the normalcy of being queer which i i love to see in indian cinema yeah connecting with shit's creek even brooklyn 99 i mean there's only two characters that, uh, who are queer but it's not their entire storyline they are that's more true. than their sexuality and i think that's one of the best yeah. parts of the show yeah. yeah and even the jokes are handled really respectfully even yeah. if they, they're like the punchline the couple it, mm. i think it's it never comes off as crass like you know dostana felt it's not oh God, on the yes. sexuality but maybe their actions well not their actions but like the relationship that's yeah. a normal in a normal way you'd even mock a heterosexual couple like that <laughs> so nothing to do with the sexuality so on that note we come to the end of this segment we will be back after a short break you are listening to press decode on the ibm podcast network welcome back to press decode on the ibm podcast network it's time for our final segment this week roast or toast and since i am hosting i will go first i'm back on least fave this week and on monday Zomato founder Dipinder Goel announced that the uh, company will be launching 10-minute food delivery services. He added that this would be made possible by installing finishing stations near high-demand neighborhoods, which will stop 20 to 30 best-selling dishes from local restaurants that usually have high demand in those neighborhoods. And it is honestly so ridiculous to me. Not only is it now less safe for delivery partners because they're racing against time and traffic and roads, uh, it is just simply... exploitative then there's the question of the food because i thought of it and like how are these finishing stations going to ensure quality and freshness if they're being stored for the sole purpose of being delivered at lightning speed like if i went to a sit down restaurant and they handed me my food in like 10 minutes i'd be like something's up here mm, very valid i want to bring up uh zomato double down and said oh we're not like unsafe we're hygienic right. with everything mm. which is all the more like balls <laughs> yeah they do have a history <laughs> sorry like sorry to be so wonderfully eloquent but how but also but you know i feel like the uh, once you let's say let's say in the beginning they're good with it also mm. once it becomes a thing you lose that That's like true. these days i don't feel like ordering in anything because it doesn't come to me in a good condition it just doesn't somehow what yeah i don't want to, like you tell me more it just doesn't come in a good condition it's like it's cold sometimes they've delivered me the wrong thing and because like they've basically now captured the market mm. I think it's just it's just <laughs> it's, you it's probably a, because you yeah, have a thing with a, zomato yeah. okay so yeah. i am con- continuing my grumpy self i have a least fave item this week um which is that you might not be able to use your ex's netflix password for too long 
the company is really suffering on the growth front and it's decided to crack down on people sharing their netflix passwords with those who don't live in the same household anymore it'll basically prompt you into paying an extra fee for the privilege of sharing your password or using somebody else's password good thing it's not coming to india yet netflix is testing it in chile costa rica and peru for now few not good i'm not, not even good. too annoyed because there's nothing good on netflix anyway so out you know all the k dramas dramas are on it moving on swiftly so prefer and nevita don't say other things um i once again have a fave item this week what is happening you are a different person but i think this item screams me okay the latest internet trend is dubbed goblin mode and i quote the term embraces the comforts of depravity so think stuffing your face with Too too many packets of ramen while watching shameful reality television shows just hold up in bed, aka most of my Friday evenings on season three of the pandemic. Someone on the Guardian rightly described it as goblin mode is kind of the opposite of trying to better yourself. I think that's the kind of energy that's giving going into two thousand twenty two. Everyone's just kind of wild and insane right now. Honestly. Amen, sister. This is exactly the energy I envisioned for the year, and I'm glad I have a word for it. So, goblin up, folks. We're only one quarter of the year down. Okay, so my fave item of the week was the video of a single cyclist stopping an entire convoy of anti-vax truckers. So, what happened was that these bunch of truckers who really, really don't want to get vaccinated against COVID took out a convoy in Washington D.C. and these huge guys in the trucks. Almost crawled to a stop when this single cyclist, like this really really thin bike, stopped in front <laughs> of the first truck and simply decided to ride the cycle very slowly. Like the guts on that guy, honestly, serious admiration from me. I start feeling weird if I am taking too long in a grocery queue. <laughs> Hats off to this guy, honestly, man. And I couldn't help but imagine what it would be like in India. This would never work in India, never. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> why are you saying? I want to know why you're saying this. Because I mean, even though there is just one lane for the traffic to move on one side, do you feel like the other that the truck is not going to overtake from the left or the right? Listen, okay, one way does not lead on. <laughs> But they're not even. I mean, if you wait for overtaking. someone's ju- if this happens in north india especially someone's just going to come out grab him by the collar and push him <laughs> to the side <laughs> yes yes oh throw back to delhi <laughs> and on that note that was our show thank you so much for joining us on press decode you can catch us every thursday on the ivm podcast network and guys please remember don't let the news give you the blues